everybody. Larry Powell here, your host for Studio HFL. And we're here on another live with interview and my guest tonight, Yari Villanueva. I, I said that correctly, right? All these years, I thought it was Yari. It, it, don't tell it's, me it, it's Jerry. Well, it's Yari. It is Yari. Okay, of course. Yari, Yari. <laughs> well, if, if to be uh, totally Finnish, it's Yari. Yari. Yeah, I was born in Finland. That's and the it, correct it pronunciation. Would, it would have the, the two dots over the... Uh, no, actually not. No, okay. No, just that's one, a German one dot thing. is fine enough for this Finn. <laughs> but <laughs> when it. I was growing up, uh, you know, I anglicized it, of course, the Jerry. And then uh, I've gone back to using Yari because um, I am a I am a Finn. <laughs> um, by nationality and like born in Finland? Sure was. No Can't kidding. you tell by my accent? <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, it's East Coast, but I mean, that's really East Coast if you're going to go <laughs> that far. Uh, I'm kidding. I, actually, yeah, I, I came over when I was about a year old. Um, but uh, and, and that, so I, I grew up here in the United States in, in Baltimore. So how close to uh, Helsinki were you living? Were you born? Actually, uh, I was born uh, about, I'd say about uh, 50 kilometers uh east of Helsinki in a fishing town. Uh, it's called Kotka, uh, but the actual town that I was born in was Karhula. So it's, it's, that's like a community suburb of, mm -hmm. of Kotka, um, uh, right on the, the Gulf of Finland. So, of course, you're heading east at that point. How close are we getting to St. Petersburg? How close are we getting to the Russian border? Not far at all. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, actually, a little close for my comfort, I would say. Yeah. Of course, everybody's becoming an expert in geography uh, these days, unfortunately, right? You have to figure out, first of all, where Ukraine is and then Finland and, and all the Baltic states up there. It, but, yes. And actually, you know, um, in 1939, Russia did invade Finland. Uh, and uh, it was the result of that was what was called the winter war that took place in the winter between 1939 and 1940. Uh, Finland was able to push off the, the Russian invasion, uh, but wound up losing uh, a lot of land uh, to Russia, including some islands where my, where my mother was born. Um, throughout her entire life, that was one of the things that uh, really upset her and you know she had to live with with, with the fact that the uh, the island that she was born on uh, it was no longer part of Finland. And then when she passed away, uh, we uh, family took her ashes as close as we mm -hmm. could to the island and, and scattered her ashes in the Gulf wow. of Finland. Wow. Uh, have you been back to Finland? Other than yes, that, uh, yes, yes, twice. I was actually on tour uh, both times with a brass group from Minnesota called the American Poyot, the American Boys. They are a, a seven-piece brass ensemble that plays Finnish brass music, Finnish septet brass, uh, which was very popular in Finland around the uh, turn of the century. Um, that type of ensemble was used for uh, dance music um, and as a big form of entertainment. So are Even we talking like the, the, the Finnish version of a polka band? Not, not to... <laughs> sort of, ex exactly, except it was all brass instruments. Okay. Uh, e, e flat cornet, two B flat cornets, 
E flat alto horn, an E a B flat tenor horn, a baritone horn, and a tuba. Uh, <laughs> that was the standard instrument. It's like a small English type of brass band, but very popular in Finland. Uh, and even Sibelius wrote music for that ensemble. No kidding. And and then when the Finns came, of course, to the United States and settled, uh, you know, in the Midwest, in the in in uh, Minnesota, in, in in that type of uh, that area of our country, mm -hmm. uh, they brought that tradition. And so the American Poyot, who's uh, they're based in Minnesota, they have recreated that uh, music and they put out a couple CDs. And I was able to go twice to Finland with them on a trip, and each time. I was able, I stayed an extra, extra week so I could uh, tour Finland as much as I could. Um, I, I've, I've only been to Helsinki, uh, but I, I've been to Sweden and Norway and um, uh, Denmark. But I remember visiting Norway and someone asked, uh, how many Norwegians are there here? And they said, well, the state of Minnesota probably has more Norwegians than Norway itself. Is there something about Minnesota that uh, is attracting from the Baltic area? Is it's it's interesting. I, I I'm not sure why. It, it may be that uh, that uh, the area in Minnesota is exactly like how it is in Finland. Mm -hmm. And you know, if you're a Finn, you really like those cold winters and the dark and stuff. And 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 that's a lot of Finnish migration wound up there. I, I, I'm just assuming. And maybe we'll have one of my friends uh, uh, from Minnesota who is a Finn, you know, tell, mm -hmm. tell me exactly why that area was settled. Uh, but it, it, interestingly enough, there was a huge uh, Finnish population uh, on the East Coast in Baltimore, where I grew up. There were a number of Finns who grew uh, who were located here. There was a, a Finnish community, mm -hmm. uh, so much so that uh, they had their own Finnish hall set up in East Baltimore, uh, very, very pro-union type of, of, of an organization. They, uh, the Finns were very active in the democratic uh, movement in Baltimore City, and they were very um, vocal and very important in the civil rights movement in the 1950s and 60s in Baltimore. How, um, how so? How, how, how did they make a well, difference there? Well, uh, a lot of the, you know, uh, plants would not hire uh, African-Americans and the Finns were very strong socialists and uh, uh, union workers. And they went and stood up for the African-Americans, making sure that they were able to get work in uh, plants like down at Sparrows Point uh, in Baltimore and other union places uh, within the city. Um, and my mother and my older sisters uh, are very proud of that of that mm -hmm. fact that you know the the Finns were very strong in in doing that. Now it's unfortunate uh, that uh, that community has has gone away. It's mm -hmm. not as strong as it used to be. There are pockets of uh, Finns throughout the United States. One of them is interestingly enough down in Florida, mm -hmm. uh, where I I have an apartment down there. Uh, an area called Lantana, which is just south of uh, West Palm Beach. Mm -hmm. uh, there has been for many, many years a strong Finnish community down there. The Finns like to come down there during the winter months <laughs> and uh, vacation there. 
I, I have to tell you, when I we started this, I, I, this is not the direction I thought we were going to go. I didn't know <laughs> didn't know we were going to talk about Finland at all. But this is all terribly fascinating. I mean, but this is the kind of stuff I like. Is you know, when you mention um, not just that there's uh, you know settling the Finns settling in Minnesota and on the East Coast, but then to be involved in the civil rights movement, I think that's that's stuff that I want to know about and stuff you're probably not going to cover in high school uh, history, right? Not as much, although the high school I went to, uh, Patterson High School in East Baltimore, was an ethnically diverse uh, school. Baltimore, of course, is um, was had pockets, neighborhoods uh, made up. You know, you'd have a German section, an Italian section, a Jewish section, a Greek section. I mean, so you can go through Baltimore today and still go drive through Greek Town, mm -hmm. Little Italy, uh, places like that. Um, so uh, this was, you know, the, the, the atmosphere, atmosphere that I grew up in mm -hmm. and, um, it's, it's not as much as it used to be, you know, uh, that sort of went away with, you know, how the migration always happens in major cities and people move away, mm -hmm. uh, from, from the area. So it's not as ethnically diverse as it was back in the seventies and eighties. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'm curious, uh, your parents migrated or immigrated to the States uh, when you said when you were a year old. Yes. Um, what were what were their occupations? What were they doing? What drew them to the States? Well, uh, well, my father actually um, is Peruvian. So I'm actually Peruvian <laughs> Finnish. <laughs> uh, and everyone says, well, how did they how did they get together? And I said, well, it's simple. World War Two. My wow. father had uh, come to the United States uh, in 1940s and joined the Merchant Marines. Mm -hmm. And uh, then after the war had become uh, a, it was a seaman for the rest of his life, worked on merchant ships, mm -hmm. uh, met my mother uh, in Finland. She was, I believe, working on a ship at the time, uh, and they met, they actually, I'm the third oldest, so there were two uh, sisters who were born before me in mm -hmm. Finland, uh, and then we uh, moved to the United States in, uh, I think it was 1956 or 57, uh, moving first to New York City for a short period of time, then down to Baltimore, where we lived in East Baltimore, and then to uh, northeast Baltimore, mm -hmm. um, but it was because because of the war. You know that's that's how my parents met. So I have a little bit of uh, Peruvian blood in me and Finnish blood, uh, and of course American American blood. <laughs> well, of course now you know I'm thinking Yari uh, would would be the uh, the Finnish, and then Villanueva, of course, that would be the the south. Well, the, the right the Spanish. I always yeah. like to tell people. You know, I'm part Finnish and part Spanish, so that makes me Spanish. You know. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, I, I'm trying to think of a way to circle back to this. Uh, we're just going to take a quantum leap. Okay. Uh, so, the first time I saw your name, it was attached to an arrangement, I think, of uh, "America the Beautiful," uh, which was a very Carmen Dragon-like arrangement. Right. And done for brass quintet. So, congratulations on that because that's one of my favorite orchestra arrangements to play. And then you you reduced it for brass quintet, and man, it, that means we could do it all the time. 
Right. That that piece and then the arrangement I did of the simple gifts, the Copeland piece. Oh, yeah. Which has been performed quite a bit. Um I love being able to take a, a, a large work and score it down for a small ensemble. And it's something I learned basically out of necessity. Like when I was in high school and then going to Peabody, you know, I, I wanted to play some great works, but you know, you only had a brass quintet to work with. So hey, we'll write it, score it down. I had a theory teacher one time. He said, anything can be reduced to four voices, anything, even Wagner. Uh, he might think that's an insult but uh, okay so you did you attempted to do that yeah sure um okay so um, well here we go i'm gonna stick with the the arranging composition thread for just a second uh obviously uh america the beautiful simple gifts that that wasn't all that long ago those weren't your first arrangements when did you start to dabble in in arranging or composition? Um, when I was in high school, actually. Um, I started uh, doing some stuff. I, I did an arrangement for the uh, school choir. Um, what the world needs now is love. <laughs> uh, I also did uh, some brass arrangements to back up the the, the chorus uh, for some Christmas things. And, and then I, um, when I was a senior at, at, at high school, um, a young lady who played French horn came uh, from another school and she was um, part of a Salvation Army family mm-hmm. and they would do programs every week. And one of the things they did was to do um, a, a Christian musical. So they asked me, hey, would you mind like doing some arrangements so that we could have a few instrumentalists? And so that was my first uh mm-hmm real jump into orchestrating something on, on, a, on a large scale. And I still even remember it's a, a Christian musical called It's the Lord's Thing. And, uh, it was, it was you know, a scaled down little musical, nothing on the big uh, things like, uh, like Camp Kirkland, the oh, great arranger, right. Not, nothing like the stuff he does today, but it was just a small High school, you know, uh, getting a saxophone, a couple trumpets, trombone, mm-hmm. bass, and and rhythm together to back it up, and and I learned a lot. And then when I went on the Peabody, I, I started doing a lot of arrangements for for different types of groups. Um, when I was at Peabody, there was a big um, ragtime uh, revival going on. It was at the because of the movie The Sting, and everybody was playing mm-hmm. the entertainers. So we actually formed a ragtime ensemble and I started doing all the arrangements for that group. Mm-hmm. And then I would, would write also for brass groups. I also did some concert band stuff. I got hired to do uh, an original musical that uh, a local high school was putting on. So I started getting my feet wet into that, not with any really formal training in orchestration. It was like learning uh, as I went along. Mm-hmm. And, and then I, I had the, greatest uh, teachers uh, at Peabody, um, theory teachers and orchestration teachers. Uh, Jack Carton uh, was one of my theory teachers, uh, Ray Sprinkle. Um, These guys really influenced me and really helped me to learn the instrumentation Mm -hmm. and also how to, how to write in a sensible manner. Although I still get a lot of, uh, 
people who yell at me as for writing uh, things without enough rests. <laughs> well, we yell at a lot of people for doing that these days. They just assume yeah. we can go forever. So did you go to Peabody specifically for composition and arranging? No, actually, um, I, I, I went to Peabody as a music education major uh, with a minor in trumpet. Uh, and I think that was a, a pretty wise choice on my end because um, the music education program at Peabody was really superb. And uh, working with um, elementary, middle school, and high school pr uh, programs, I started like jumping in and writing things for them. And that when you get to write for like a middle school band, you really learn quickly the uh, the limitations mm -hmm. of, of players and, and how to write for them and, and how to make things playable and, and sound good. And, and I really enjoyed that experience. And uh, the student teaching that I did uh, at schools really added a lot to my, uh, to my education. Are you familiar so with I, uh, Brian Belmages at all? Yeah, uh, Brian, actually, uh, Brian's dad, Fred, was uh, before me at Peabody. I think Brian came right after me. Well, uh, so Brian comes to Indianapolis to do recordings for all of his, uh, I think, through FJH Publishing. And so I'm usually in the concert band there recording. And <laughs> the, the arrangements are terrific. And, you know, we're sitting there thinking, these are middle school arrangements. Like, we didn't have stuff like this when I was in middle school. I mean, this was, it's stuff that a second and third trumpet player would really enjoy playing. And they could play it with greater ease. Um, just, But just great insight uh from brian on that so I, I you're talking about the same sort of thing about trying to make things interesting um and yeah, accessible and, and, and i'm sure brian did the same thing you know i'd love studying scores and with uh you looking at the the arrangements done by like john Kenyon mm -hmm. uh and and john edmonds uh edmondson uh those guys who could uh, john tatchenhorst mm -hmm. uh those those writers for um school bands uh, another person i really liked was um uh, bob loudon and mm -hmm. my the people who i really admired on the on the higher scale uh were uh philip j lang mm -hmm. and of course robert russell bennett always enjoyed that stuff and then um as as i got older and, and started reading more and studying I, I found out how much I really enjoyed the writings of uh, Henry Fillmore, who, who Fillmore knew how to write for school bands. I have to say, I think I've only done marches that he's done. I don't, I don't, can't recall actually doing any any uh, concert pieces. Well, I, he he did some concert pieces, but I'm talking about the the band books, the march books he did for. Okay. Um, but but you won't you won't know, you won't recognize them as being Henry Fillmore because they're written under different names. The Harold Bennett Band Book, for example, <laughs> the Harold Bennett Band Book is um, all easy marches that are playable uh, by you know a middle school band. That was all Henry Fillmore. Hmm. And his wife had uh, in later years talked that uh, said how he he spent more time on those arrangements, uh, making sure that they were all playable within good keys for younger players. And 
you could pull out those books today and they are wonderful one of the one of the marches that comes out of that is a march called um, military escort mm-hmm. and that march is like the most one of the most played marches ever uh, even Sousa said uh, that he wished he had written it. <laughs> uh, do you enjoy playing marches? I mean, you you probably played quite a few. Uh, Twenty three years in the Air Force. Yeah, we played a uh, couple of uh, a couple of them here. A couple there. of them. I, I I love marches. I I think they are terrific, and I think that uh, every every band when they when they program when they do a program they need to include a, a couple marches right. at least at least two marches uh, on the program because there's nothing more american than a, a a good march by by sousa or fillmore or carl king or any other uh <laughs> if great. i say fred jewel would you would you agree with that I'd love Fred Jewel. Fred <laughs> Jewel, you know, when you play his marches, you can actually smell the elephants. So uh, I, I mentioned that name because uh, there's a trumpet player uh, educator here in town, Charlie Conrad, who did a doctoral pr- uh, project on all 149 Fred Jewel marches. Wow. And I was part of a, of a group uh, that got to play all of those. <laughs> and I can tell you, there were, there were some good ones. He, he had a he had a few, but oh my goodness, I couldn't believe we we played through every one of those. But uh, you know, but there's a there's so much style. It's not just umpa, right? I mean, there's so much style to learn in playing a march. It's not just it's not just the the uh, stereotypical di da 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 da, right? I mean, there's articulation, right. there's there's dynamics, there's everything in there. That's right, and and one thing too about marches is that. Uh, I'll, I'll, I, I, when I go and hear a concert of marches, sometimes I'm, I'm very impressed, and a lot of times I'm very like not happy with the uh, the way marches are played. Everybody just uh, they seem to throw them off. Oh, we're going to do a march on our next concert, and maybe they'll rehearse, they'll play it down once, and that's mm-hmm. it. There, there are so many great things you can do with marches, and and, and especially with Sousa marches. His marches, of course, were never meant to be played as written. You know, he would always, uh, like on a repeat, the brass would lay out. It would mm-hmm. be the woodwinds who would play. Mm-hmm. He would uh, make sure that uh, certain accents would happen in spots. And a lot of times they're not written. You have to understand how marches work to, to mm-hmm. sort of intuitively know where to put these things in. So what the One of the... One of the reasons Sousa marches work so well is because he had a phenomenal bass drum uh, player in his band, <laughs> Gus uh, Hemke. I think it is uh, probably screwing up his last name, but Big Gus on the bass drum would always give these oomph oomph things. Uh, and if you listen to the Marine Band mm-hmm. when they play like Semper, uh, Semper Fidelis and they go through the first straight and you hear this like cymbal and bass drum give mm-hmm. punches, that's all because of Gus's work and, and he would always notate that in. Um, so things like that, you know, really help make marches. And mm-hmm. uh, I, I just wish that uh, all community bands would, would program at least one or two. Mm-hmm. I know that the uh, the uh the band um the the repass band 
you know, they had a march that was written for them, mm -hmm. which is also one of the most uh, played uh, marches ever written. Um, and they always end their concert with with that march that was written for them. They're one mm -hmm. of the oldest uh, community bands in the United States. Um, you alluded to uh, you could smell the elephants on the Fred Jewell march. You know, of course, you're thinking about circuses, but I have always thought um, we played marches too fast. You know, and there uh, there are some that just boy they feel great when they're like 108 or 112. Yes, absolutely. Um, I, I'm in, I am in, in agreement with that, that sometimes marches can be played too fast. However, there are some marches, <laughs> you know, the Carl King and, and, mm -hmm. and, um, and, and, and the Fillmore marches that are really supposed to fly. Mm -hmm. That's barn burners, right? I mean, then that kind of right. what the right circus be and all that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Absolutely. Okay, so you you, uh, you mentioned the Air Force, uh, 23 years with the United States Air Force. Uh, where were you stationed during all of that? Uh, I spent the entire time at uh, Bowling Air Force Base, which is the headquarters of the United States Air Force. Mm -hmm. And it's uh, where the Air Force Band is, the Air Force Band is located. Mm -hmm. It's now uh, uh, Joint Base uh, Bowling Anacostia. Mm -hmm. uh, they've combined the bases. But uh, the the Air Force Band, of course, which was formed in 1942, and then uh, as the Army Air Corps Band, and then became you know the the Air Force Band in 1947, has been at bowling since that time. Uh, I joined the Air Force Band in 1985. Um, after teaching for a half a year uh, in middle school, mm -hmm. and uh, I was offered the job, so I I, I took it. Uh, unfortunately, leaving halfway through a school semester, which mm -hmm. I didn't really want to do, but the Air Force was so tempting. And H had um, you any aspirations of of military service before that? Um, not really. Uh, although, uh, I had been offered uh, a third. Uh, the third cornet spot with the U.S. Army Field Band at Fort Meade uh, back uh, a few years earlier, and I turned it down, dummy. Now, <laughs> turned it down because I didn't want to do all the touring. I wanted because uh -huh. at that time they were on the road quite a bit, mm -hmm. um, and I felt I didn't want to do that. So I, I went into teaching and then left teaching. Uh, to go back and get my master's degree at Kent State University mm -hmm. uh, and then came back and auditioned for the Air Force Band. And the reason I had to leave in between uh, semesters is that after when I auditioned for the band, I wasn't accepted. So I took a teaching job. And then three months into the teaching job, the Air Force called and said, hey, you were number two <laughs> and number one can't do, can't make it for whatever reason. And so if you're still interested, we'd love to have you. Wow. Uh, so I was stationed just across the river from you. I was at the Pentagon when I served. I was Air Force and, oh, uh, yes, I, yeah. and uh, went over to bowling a few times. Uh, basically, I think that's where the, the my dentist was. Uh, I would take the bus uh, from the Pentagon over. Um, and I actually did audition for the Air Force Band in, it was late 89. And this oh. was just as 
um, Desert Eagle was was starting. It wasn't Desert Storm yet. It was Desert Eagle. I think that was the precursor. That was the ramp up to. Uh, boy, that was that was late '89, early '90. I think all that happened. Yeah, when all all that was ha starting to happen, I remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you auditioned on trumpet. I did for the concert band. Um, no, here's there. I don't know that there was an actual opening in the band in DC, but I worked in personnel. I was just, I don't know, a corridor down from the guys in the band office. And so I would get to know them. I'd stop by and chat with them every now and then. And I uh, started to pick their brain. Hey, uh, you know, any chance I could get an audition? They helped set up an audition for me. So I went over and played and, uh, they said, you know, we would like to offer you a position. It would, would have been in one of the regional uh, regional groups. That had been fine. But that's right when they stopped all the, the transfers. And there was a drawdown on administration and a buildup on flight line. And uh, I was offered an early out. And so I, I got out. Yeah, it was that was around the time that I think the Air Force cut like 11 bands. Mm-hmm. Uh, the late oh, yeah. 80s, beginning 90s. There was an yeah. incredible drawdown. Uh, and we also lost some very fine officers um, at that time, some captains who were in the band program um, at that time. And uh, what a real shame. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking of, I know of two captains who were, who were, you know, dismissed or you know told you know yeah. told to get out basically yeah. um and they would have been uh both of them would have been great assets to the to the air mm -hmm. force program mm -hmm. um and it, just a real a real shame at that time it, you know speaking of that time i auditioned to be uh, a band officer oh. at, at that time and um uh, as the story of my life happens uh it all came down to two people. <laughs> it was me and uh, a fellow who was actually a clarinet player from the Army Field Band. Mm -hmm. uh, and they took him, and which was great because he went on to a really terrific career conducting mm -hmm. in the Air Force Band. And then as it turned out, you know, I, I was able to stay with the band and, you know, continue doing what I love doing, you know, mm -hmm. playing, writing for the band uh, and uh being as involved with uh, as much with it as, as I possibly could. Mm -hmm. So the first time you were on funeral detail and uh, called to play taps, what was that experience like that very first one? Pretty nerve wracking. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, it's, it's really is, uh, you know, OJT, you know, they explain exactly how it's going to, they're going to do it. You go out a few times, you watch somebody, uh, but then you go out and you actually do it. And, and for a trumpet player, um, sounding taps at Arlington as a member of a military band, you're going to find yourselves in, in, in various situations. You may be playing as part of the band. So the band will march down from the chapel or if, another area from the cemetery to the gravesite. Mm -hmm. Once you get there, the band will play as the casket is brought up to the site. And then you step out of the band and you wait for the firing party and, you, and then you sound taps. Uh, the other one is where they do uh, standard honor funerals, where it's just the bugler, the honor guard mm -hmm. um, are there. So you have to make sure you know what your cue is. Mm -hmm. uh, most of the time you wait for the firing party and then you, you sound taps. 
but occasionally there might be a, an opportunity where there is no firing party. So you have to make sure and, and, and work out that signal ahead of time. Who's going to signal you to, 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 to do the call. Uh, but that was one of the, the greatest things I enjoyed uh, at Arlington was able to, to be able to sound taps uh, mm -hmm. uh, for the many funerals. Um, I sounded taps for uh, General Ira Eaker, who was the commander of the 8th Air Force when, mm -hmm. when he passed away. Um, I also sounded taps for General Godfrey McHugh, who was the Air Force aide to John F. Kennedy. Wow. Um, was actually He had actually accompanied uh, Kennedy to Dallas and refused to leave the side of the coffin all the way back to Washington. Um, so when when he passed away, um, mm -hmm. it was my turn to play that. I, I thought it was an incredible honor, you know, to do that for this for this man. Uh, I've always viewed that as an honor. It, it's one of the more nerve wracking, right? It, you've, I've not done it near as many times. Over ten thousand, I think, is what uh, you had said. It, yeah, you know, I, I should have kept track. <laughs> I mean, probably about five thousand in my twenty three years. But yeah, since then I've been, you know, I've done it. Yeah so many times with so many veterans and yeah. I really have lost track, but my, my you know, dad he, was, my dad was career air force and I played for his funeral. We talked about it before he passed. He didn't want a military service. And I said, no dad, <laughs> you know? Uh, and so he, okay, fine. He agreed. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you did that. Um, I also did that for my dad. Mm. Um, and he was buried at a state veteran cemetery. Um, fortunately, uh, the laws had changed uh, because uh, just within a few years before he before he passed, because since he was a merchant marine, he wasn't eligible for burial in a veteran cemetery. Oh. So that that law changed. And then uh, at the time when the time came and he passed away, I, I went there and uh, mm -hmm. I remember going up to that cemetery. They, they had a bugler from uh, the uh the honor guard, the Maryland, the National Guard honor guard, mm -hmm. uh, was a contracted bugler, and I I came in with my uniform, and he, he looked at me and I said, "You know how to play taps?" I said, "Yeah, I think I do." <laughs> so, but it was it was a it was a little tough, you know, doing yeah. it for your dad. Yeah, but but, but it, truly an honor, you know. I just I couldn't imagine. Well, and I tell you the the uh, detail that showed up. Uh, had a digital bugle and you know and, and i'm glad that taps has sounded for any veteran but if you can do it live yeah you got to do it live exactly and and i'm not gonna disparage the, the the electronic bugle the digital bugle because it, it it does have a place if there is no bugler at all available mm -hmm. it's it's better than nothing and right. i know some people will say no you know they should it should be silent you know nothing but in reality the family wants to hear taps mm -hmm. um absolutely i would advocate it's got to be a live bugler mm -hmm. but if if there's no one available you can't find anyone then you got to have something um, the only problem is, and, and, and by the way, this is the 20th year that that thing has been in operation. Uh, the unfortunate wow. thing about it is that a lot of uh, VFW groups, uh, American Legion groups, and even some military groups insist on using that even if a live player shows up. 
you know, and, and that's that's absolutely wrong. That you know, if a live player is there, the, the, it should take the back seat mm-hmm. to to a live player. Where um, a couple questions here that I want to remember. One is I want to ask about uh, trumpet versus bugle, and when and your thoughts on that. But the other is when did this interest in taps and the history of taps? Uh, when did that really start to uh, interest you? Well, I've always, you know, but you know, I was a Boy Scout bugler, mm. and of course, you know, going through uh, Peabody and learning about trumpet literature and, and things like that, learning about uh, the the natural trumpet. That was one thing. But but as far as taps went, it, it was about uh, like a year or so in to my time with the Air Force, and we're on the bus heading over to the cemetery. And the drum major turns around to me and says, do you know the history of the of taps? And I stared at him for a while and said, not really. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that was like the call for me to, to do some research. And that began the long trip that I've had that brings me here today. Mm-hmm. Started, you know, finding out everything I could about it. I went to... Um, the military library up at Carlisle, Pennsylvania, went to the Library of Congress, the National Archives, started finding out uh, as many books as possible uh, to, to find out what the, the real story at, uh, behind TAPS was, you know, mm-hmm. what it was all about. Um, my trip, my, my journey also took me down to Berkeley Plantation in Charles City, Virginia, where TAPS was born, because uh, in a nutshell, Taps was composed during the summer of 1862 uh, along the James River at Berkeley Plantation. It was called Harrison's Landing at that time. Mm-hmm. It's where the Union Army came to rest and recuperate following the Seven Days Battles in June of 1862. They were camped there for the entire month of July, mm-hmm. and it's during that time that that bugle call surfaced, uh, composed and I'm going to put that in quotes, mm-hmm. <laughs> composed by General Daniel Butterfield mm-hmm. and first performed by his bugler, Oliver Wilcox Norton. Subsequent uh, research has found that uh, Butterfield really didn't compose the call. What he did was he revised an old bugle call that had gone out of use prior to the Civil War, um, changing the last uh, six and a half measures uh, rewriting that just a little bit into the 24 notes that we know uh, today as taps. Do you know the original? What he adapted? It, yes, it's 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 it was under the title of tattoo. It was it's a, it's an old tattoo call mm-hmm. that had surfaced in uh, the military manuals around 1835 in the manuals of uh, written by Winfield Scott. So we refer to it as the Scott tattoo. Does it um, convey any of that same emotion that the, the, what we know as taps now? Does it have any of that same? It, it can. Well, you know, the tattoo calls at that time were long calls, and they were meant to basically um, have the soldiers come back and form up for the last roll call of the day. And all, as in modern tattoos and in fact if you uh listen to a tattoo call from any almost any military around the world you'll hear the last part of that being performed in like a a slow version and you can almost Mm -hmm. hear the bugle or you know 
tattoo, tattoo. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, that last six and a half measures evokes our modern taps today. Mm -hmm. Although it, 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 there was no indication of any kind of tempo markings in the original. Mm -hmm. So basically, you know, by the Civil War, that call has been replaced by a new one that is heard during the Civil War during the 1860s. Mm -hmm. And then that one goes out of use by 1874. And the, uh, the, the tattoo that we are, that we know today heard on military bases uh, takes over. Mm -hmm. Okay, so now to the question of trumpet versus bugle. And if you're playing a bugle, what key? <laughs> Whatever key works for you. <laughs> um, Everyone, yeah, that's that's always been a question. Why use the bugle? I've got a perfectly good trumpet here. Well, that's fine, and 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 there's nothing against uh, using a trumpet or a cornet to, to to sound taps. The the bugle, I think, is much more of a traditional instrument. And God bless the United States Army Band, Pershing Zone. They have understood that tradition uh, for a hundred years of their existence. Um, having a bugler, having a bugle that when, when you're at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, you use a bugle. You don't use a trumpet because that's the traditional instrument. Mm -hmm. They also use a bugle to sound the call at uh, certain funerals in Arlington. Mm -hmm. So they've kept that tradition alive. Um, I've always, personally, I feel that it's a call that should be performed on, on a bugle. Um and as far as the key goes, um, B flat is the one that you know most people use because they they play it on an open the open partials of a B flat trumpet. However, um, we, you hear the call also in G, and that stems from the the model eighteen ninety two trumpet in G, the, the the typical Boy Scout bugle mm -hmm. um, that was. Uh, that was came into use at that time and, and actually still is in use today. Um, and, and people like to use that G bugle because it's, it's a little easier mm -hmm. to play. Um, you don't have the register isn't as high. Mm -hmm. And by the way, you know, that G bugle was the, the reason that all the drum corps that started all mm -hmm. the DCI and all the all mm -hmm. the drum corps that started in the 1920s were in the key of G because right. they first started using it on G trumpets. Then they added one valve, mm -hmm. then two valves, then three valves, and now they switched to B flat. Yeah, <laughs> except for the Marines, the Marines are still uh, using the G side. Yeah, I, you know, um, I was in drum corps for a while, but uh, there was a guy that uh, brought a soprano in that had just the thumb valve, the piston this right. way. And then of course they had a rotor, they originally uh, eventually attached here. And then of course, then the two pistons. Right. Um, they were not the easiest things to play. They are difficult to play, yeah. Um, mm -hmm. um, and I don't understand all the acoustics and all the physics behind it, but G bugles are, are just not as well made as B flat bugles. Uh, although I had been proven wrong on that a couple times. Well, hasn't uh, Cancel made a, a good? Cancel made a terrific G. Mm -hmm. uh, Carol Bugle, and here's a little plug. I, you know, I sell oh, yeah, Carol Bugle. I just bugles. saw that. 
And Carol makes a nice jean, which I didn't know about. Mm -hmm. uh, they sent one to me, and it's really terrific. Mm -hmm. um, I also have in my collection um, a, a box Stradivarius G Bugle. Very rare. Um, it's not the Apollo model. That's the Boy Scout type bugle mm -hmm. that Bach um, made in the 1930s. But this is an actual Stradivarius model. And it plays like velvet in the key of G. And it, every time I play it, it's like, wow, I, I don't understand how, how, why it plays so well. But it's, it's got that Bach sound. I wonder how many uh, production models were made it. That, that's the crazy thing. No one knows for sure because although Bach kept shop cards on everything, there were times when he would get an order and, and, and make some bugles and there wasn't really much follow-up to it. And mm -hmm. that, that goes to a, another question I get a lot where people will send me photographs of, of bugles asking me, can I date when it was manufactured? Mm -hmm. And it's really tough because bugles don't have serial numbers. Mm -hmm. And so you can come within uh, a decade or so, uh, depending on, on certain uh, manufacturers, the way it was manufactured, mm -hmm. especially with like cons and kings, you can, you can sort of tell. And then, of course, during World War II, um, you can tell which were manufactured at that time because of the stamp that was put on the bell. Mm -hmm. But outside of that, it's very difficult to pin down exactly when a bugle was made. I have to tell you, I appreciate so much the history uh, that uh, the amount of research that you've done and made available to everybody. Uh, I had researched this. Um, I wanted to get it right. I wanted to get the performance of taps right. And I knew there was some rhythmic, you know, everybody seems to take a little bit of liberty with this, that, and the other. I thought, you know what? Um, I want to do it right. I wonder where I can go. I know where I can go to find out how. And so I went to uh, tapsbugler.com and uh, there's the plug for for that terrific website great Thank history you. Um, you know and pictures of of the right way to stand uh, you know the posture the way to do it um, so I would encourage anybody that's going to have the opportunity uh, the honor to sound taps go there you know even if you're going to do it once just understand the history the uh, the tradition behind that so. I, and thank you for, for mentioning that. And I, I do think that we, we tend to lose sight of what that tradition is. You know, when, when you're asked to play at a funeral, you know, you're, you're just part of this great tradition that's been part of, of, our, our, of, of the history of our country. Mm -hmm. and, and it's only right to say, well, let's see if we can play it right. Let's play it correctly. Mm -hmm. You know, do the tradition, do it correctly. And a lot of people will say, well, what's the big deal? You know, why, who cares? You know, I'm, I'm going to play 24 notes. Mm -hmm. Well, it's, it's because there is that tradition there. Mm -hmm. And we, we, we try to do it as correctly as possible. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I, I like to get that information up there. So at least there's a resource that, you know, people can come back to and say, oh, how, how do you play taps? Okay, well, here it is, you know. Mm -hmm. And and I try to cite the you know the documentation for it too. I'm not just making stuff up as the you know oh this is the way we should do it. Everything you know that I put up on the website, there's a reason for it. There's and there's documentation that that backs it up. 
So it's not a Wikipedia uh, bugle oh, right. type, right? I mean, this is actual <laughs> tried and true factual research stuff. Yeah, exactly. And I, I try, and, and 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 I'm very happy if someone catches like mistakes, um, especially spelling mistakes or just like, oh no, that's that's wrong information. I'm more than happy to to make changes and uh, and, and correct. I also on, on tapsbugler.com. I have great stories about buglers. You know, the, the, we had some wild characters, you know, who played the bugle, you know, one guy for 36 years who would play Reveille each morning in his hometown upon a, a, por a perch that he built in his backyard. Uh, we had a bugler here in Baltimore who used to go to ball games dressed in a baseball uniform and would play bugle calls. Um, uh, of course, and then stories, you know, the, the first bugler does ever sound taps at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, Frank Witchy, uh, his great story about his playing. Um, th there's all kind of all kind of great stories. And then, of course, I try to also uh, talk about protocol things, too, uh, mm -hmm. on the website. How to you know what's the best thing to do? Like when you hear taps, what are you supposed to do when you hear the Star Spangled Banner? Um, because I do get a lot of questions about that. And one of the questions that have come up this past week, uh, people asking me, Oh, we're gonna play the Ukrainian anthem and the Star Spangled Banner, which comes first? And so, you know, I I like to explain, you know, the, the protocol for that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, so what's and the then, answer to that? Oh well, <laughs> it's uh if we're in the United States, Ukraine comes first and the anthem, our Star Spangled Banner comes second. Mm -hmm. I always like to say, think of it as um, a baseball game. The home team bats second. Gotcha. So if the only time here in the United States where it would be reversed is if you were actually at the Ukrainian embassy in Washington, mm -hmm. then you're on Ukrainian soil. So then mm -hmm. the U.S. anthem would go first and Ukrainian would go second. So here's a question. I thought, you know, you've seen, especially at the State of the Union address, you see the people stand, um, and I, I would certainly stand in solidarity. Um, but during the playing of a Ukrainian or another country's anthem, you know, I, I don't know that I would put my hand over my heart. I think that's, I save that for, for, the, for my country. I, yeah, I, I think you see that too. I, I I've noticed that, uh, like even with the, the president uh, at like it, one of the state arrivals at the White House, when the foreign anthem is played, you know, the, the president is standing at attention. But then when the Star Spangled Banner comes up, you know, the hand will go over the heart or the, the, the salute will happen. Um, uh, you, you know, with, with these type of protocols, we have to always remember they're not law. You're not, no one's going to be arrested. Right. <laughs> no, nobody's going to come out and beat you with a baseball bat if you do it wrong. It's, you know, the, it's it's just suggestions, you know, yeah. and, and it's based on, you know, respect and, Absolutely. and, and, and courtesy and protocol. Mm -hmm. um, and we there's no better way of, you know, showing respect, you know, than to stand, you know, when you hear somebody's anthem being mm -hmm. performed um and i was the recipient of you know some of these honors when i visited uh sweden to to guest conduct one of their military bands um uh we did the anthems and and people stood and i heard even even heard people sing you know the words of the star spangled banner mm -hmm. which really got to me mm -hmm. but but then afterwards 
uh, we had a little party and it was time, uh, it was in the afternoon because this was an early afternoon concert, but at the party, they, they came to me and said, it's time to take the flags down. And when I went outside, they had the U.S. flag flying, which just really almost brought me to tears. But wow. they said, we're going to play our flag lowering, and then you can play uh, the, the retreat call as mm -hmm. the flag goes down mm -hmm. and to the color. So they honored me by, you know, having the flag uh, up and then brought down with the proper honors mm -hmm. and showing respect and courtesy. And that's what it's all about. Yep. I, I work at a local high school and they play before the morning announcements. Uh, they play to the colors and everybody stands for the pledge, you know, faces the flag. Um, although not everybody does. That, and that, that kind of gets to me. But I understand, right? This is part yeah. of freedom. Absolutely. But, and I respect that. But uh, still, uh, secretly, I would like, <laughs> I wish everybody would stand and show that. But uh, So 23 years in the Air Force, and I was trying to do the math here. You went in 85, 95, it was 2008, roughly, you got out. Right. Right. Since then, what, what's been keeping you busy? I mean, other than, <laughs> than the Baltimore Orioles baseball games, right, which I know you're a fan. Well, I, I'm a huge fan. I have not posted much on Facebook uh, about baseball because I'm, I'm a little upset because they haven't mm. figured out how to get their heads together and, you know, get this strike over and get, you know, back to, you know, playing baseball. But Didn't uh, they learn from the last time they did this? It's they're shooting themselves in the foot. Mm -hmm. um, the more they stay out, the more people are going to be staying away. Yep. And uh, it's, it's unfortunate. But I've been an Orioles fan since since I was tiny. I'm I'm going to die an Orioles fan. <laughs> um, I I love I love the team. I love baseball in general. Um, I just want them to just you know get out get out of the this boardroom and let's play ball. Come so on. you know what? If the Bengals, after what thirty some years uh, out of the playoffs, can make it to the Super Bowl, then maybe the Orioles can dig themselves out of the basement well right? yeah it's the last world series win was in 1983 <laughs> so it's time right it's time, it's time. <laughs> yeah, it, it, yeah it's time so anyway uh when i um I, I left the air force because you know i i actually joined uh rather late in life i was almost 30 years old when mm -hmm. i got to the band mm -hmm. um so in 2008 you know i'm looking towards that 55 um you know have to you know get out um a job came open with the state of maryland as uh for the the job of director of the maryland national guard honor guard mm -hmm. um i i interviewed for that job and the, um they 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 took me mm -hmm. <laughs> and for almost 10 years i was the 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 director you uh, weren't second manager. you weren't the second choice for that job Right. Actually, that's another funny story. Oh, um, no. there was, they, they took a long time to, to to pick me because there was another person oh. involved who had these political connections and was trying to get the job, who was not really versed in military protocol, mm -hmm. funeral, anything like that. But he had, you know, these connections. Thank goodness uh, the, the adjutant general at that time, Bruce Tuxel, who uh, I, I thank to this day, stepped in and said, 
we're going to hire this guy, you know? <laughs> so he hired me and uh, I, I was there for almost 10 years. A wonderful experience working with 70 uh, army and air force personnel in providing military funeral honors throughout the state of Maryland. Wow. Um, uh, with that, that uh, 30,000 funerals in that time period that I was responsible for. Good heavens. Yeah. I didn't play them all. But, no, but uh, it, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and you know, you hear about these numbers on occasion about how many uh, World War II veterans die each year. Of course, now we're getting to the point where uh, <laughs> that number is going to drop drastically. I mean, we're, we're just going to run out of uh, veterans from that, uh, from that era. We are. Back, you know, during that time, 2000, you know, 2005, 2008, the, the number was that they were passing, a, passing away at the rate of about a thousand a day. Hmm. Uh, I don't know what the numbers are right now, but you, you're absolutely right. We're almost mm -hmm. at the end. Mm -hmm. um, and they're all in their upper 90s mm -hmm. now. And so we're going to lose that generation. And mm -hmm. We're going to get to that point, like with Frank Buckles, the uh, last World War One veteran. Mm -hmm. We're going to have the last World War Two veteran, mm -hmm. and it might take about another ten to fifteen years for that to happen. But mm -hmm. uh, we're get, it's going to happen. But you know, I'm so grateful that uh, we can do uh, even something like this, right? Even something this conversation we're having right here could be uh, archival. Right footage. If somebody wanted to be able to find out uh, something about Yari in you know twenty, thirty, forty oh. <laughs> years, right? But you know, you know what I mean. So the documentaries, even something like Saving Private Ryan, when you when you see the stories and your your or, or uh, Schindler's List, right? And you're encouraged to maybe dig deeper into um, into the war and things like that. But then you start to maybe get curious about. Um, the not a documentary is not the right word, but interviews with people, real people who were there. Um, I, I don't know. I find that fascinating um, and and terribly moving. You know, just trying to fathom, you know, what they were going through. Um, yeah, uh, you know, uh, you know, Stephen Ambrose was great at that for recounting stories, mm -hmm. and you know, I mean, all his books were you know, stories that were told to him by, by the, those who fought during that time. Um, and yeah, it, it, that's what it's all about. The person, the personalized stories mm -hmm. of what they did during world war II. And now we're getting, of course, to that time where we're hearing a lot, of the Vietnam uh, mm -hmm. veterans too, who've got the stories mm -hmm. of what it was like to serve. And of course, you know, yourself being a veteran as, as, as my, myself, you know, we have, we have our war stories too, mm -hmm. maybe, you know, maybe not as, of course, not, nothing like what they went through. Uh, but so here's, here's my big travesty um, as an E3 uh, <laughs> working at, uh, I was, I was working for a three-star and uh, I was responsible for, I was an admin and I was responsible for supplies for the department. And there was a conference coming up and they asked me to order 200 clear name badge holders and 200 boxes, 20,000 <laughs> showed up on a pallet outside the <laughs> office. And uh, my sergeant said, uh, Airman Powell. And I was like, uh, yes, sir. <laughs> 
Yeah, I, I mean, come on. If that's the extent of my mistakes, right? That's not so bad. No, that, that, yeah, that's that's not bad. But something like that happened with the Air Force Band. The, those archival <laughs> boxes that they store music in. Mm, mm-hmm. The same thing happened. <laughs> it, it, it was like uh, the, the the decimal point went to the wrong whatever. <laughs> right. You know, it, right. The comma went to the wrong place. Yeah. But uh, yeah, yeah, it happens. Yeah. So, uh, what rank did you retire at? I retired as a master sergeant, E7. Mm-hmm. Um, my dad, I think, was one of the first master sergeants. Uh, of course, he got in in 50. And I think, of course, uh, senior and chief weren't, a, weren't ranks. Um, well, I don't know when those came along, but uh, it took a while. I think they came in the 60s mm-hmm. when, they, when, the, when the military added the, those, the eights and the nines. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I should have said this at the top. I'll say it now. Thank you for your service. And, and thank you just, for yours. Thank you very much. Um, but not just serving in the service, but the service you provided to all those families uh, and the honors. And I think that's, uh, boy, if they couldn't thank you every time, which I know they couldn't, um, I know they wish they could. It was an incredible honor, I, I will tell you. And I, I tried to approach every single one, just like the honor guard that does, you know, that mm-hmm. the funeral we're doing right now is the most important one. Mm-hmm. And we're absolutely, you know, we want to make it as perfect as possible. Mm-hmm. And um, doing, you know, having that kind of thought in my head was, a, you know, a strong motivator. And I can, I, I'll tell you, I can, I can remember the last service I did at Arlington. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, uh, I had um, just about to go on terminal leave because I was starting my new job with the state of Maryland. Mm-hmm. And I, I did a, a full honors funeral in the morning with the band. Uh, the, and then in the afternoon, I had uh, two standards to do. Mm-hmm. And the last one was um a a retired uh master sergeant um uh and i remember doing that service and then spending some time with father mcgill who was the uh the catholic chaplain mm-hmm. and just talking to him and, and reminiscing and he was terrific and he offered a really nice prayer for me you mm-hmm. know as i left and thanked me for my service you know mm-hmm. to the you know, to Arlington. And that was really special. And I still have the job sheet, you know, mm-hmm. the piece of paper from that, mm-hmm. that day. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was, it was very, very special. And uh, I think it was also Lincoln's birthday too, which I'll always remember is you know, good way to remember that last day, yeah. last day serving my country yeah. at, at Arlington. And I'll tell you, it, it's the toughest thing because once I left the gate, I knew that I would never mm-hmm. be able to come back to play as a military bugler at Arlington or have a chance to play at the tomb of the unknown soldier mm-hmm. that that was now, you know, past. Mm-hmm. Did you ever play at the tomb of the unknown? Yes. Okay. Not, so you did have that, but you were saying you wouldn't be able to do it again. I understand. Right. I, ha- only a few times because, uh, you know, that's the army band's domain up there, but mm-hmm. uh, the air force would occasionally do uh, full honor services there and a full honors wreath services and we would use an air force bugler who would step out of the formation and, and sound taps and so i got to do that a few times and i will tell you that was the most 
that was the scariest thing for me wow. in, in my career. You know, the, the, knowing that I was playing in the 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 the, the most sacred spot in you know the military, mm-hmm. uh, and playing you know for the for the tomb. And then I uh, when I did the exhibit at Arlington, the bugle exhibit, I actually had some. Uh, photographs of some uh, publicity photos made at the tomb so they're on the internet you can see me standing by the tomb okay. with my bugle and that that i could that was a, a great day to, to be able to go onto the plaza mm-hmm. uh and, and do those photographs um i have I, i'll have to bring it i'll show it to, i'll i'll scan it and send it to you my picture uh, of the pentagon uh and where i where i worked i mean it's, it's oh. not it's not the same <laughs> <laughs> as as that but uh you know i do keep it it is it's a nice way to remember um you know th- what i was doing there and that people actually appreciated it hey i want to read uh, some of these comments on the side here uh, oh, maria, sure. maria mcbride yari you are a true inspiration beautiful mission oh. uh john herman and for my dad uh buddy cook better than the cd player right i think that's talking back you know, back to uh, yeah. the digital bugle uh, John Herndon. Yep, I had to fight off a digital bugle too. <laughs> Afterwards, they asked me if I live nearby. Uh, John Herndon. Thank you, Larry. This is great. Learning tons about Yari and tradition. You're welcome very much. Lynn Campbell. Thanks to both of you. You're very welcome. Uh, John. True. That's one. Um, the one we're doing now is the most important. Oh, right. Alluding back to the the job in front of you, the funeral you're standing at right there. And Maria McBride, thank you. And uh, let's see the last one. Lynn, thanks, Yari, for all you've done and to and do to educate buglers and the general public about taps. Yes, again, thank you for that. Um, you know, it's, uh, again, tapsbugler.com. Um, and again, there, there, I think there are links, if I'm remembering, there are links to all kinds of outside resources there too, yes? Yes, uh, a couple of things that are going on. Of course, the big link is to tapsforveterans.org which is our um, service that helps provide live buglers for military funerals around the country. We have about 1,000 uh, buglers who've signed up. Um, and it's a very unique service in that everybody who, who, who joins TAPS for Veterans uh, auditions via a video mm-hmm. submission to YouTube that goes to a private channel. No one can mm-hmm. see it except mm-hmm. for us. That's how we... Um, make sure that you know these these are decent players mm-hmm. um and then the way we have our system set up is that when a request comes in um it goes directly to your cell phone as a text oh. message so if somebody makes a request within a second you get a bing on wow. your cell phone if you're in that area so wow. it's pretty cool and so taps for veterans is also involved with a number of projects we have, uh, I had to write them down here because we've got so many things happening. Uh, Taps Across America, mm-hmm. which is the program. This will be our third year with mm-hmm. CBS News, uh, having uh, performers around the country. And this is more than just trumpeters and buglers. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyone who plays a musical instrument and wants to play taps, you know, mm-hmm. in honor of, of, of in memory, uh, during the National Pause for Remembrance at 3 p.m. on Memorial Day, mm-hmm. uh, we're going to be opening up registration. There'll be coming. There'll be more things coming from CBS News. Right now, um, I talked to the producers uh, last week, but of course, with everything that's going on in the world right now, right. 
there that's on hold until probably uh april um i, I mean the information about mm -hmm. it it's going to sure. happen good um and the past two years were quite quite a success mm -hmm. we are also involved with 100 nights of taps gettysburg this is a program that was founded by a, a terrific lady by the name of wendy allen who lives in gettysburg mm -hmm. this is our sixth sixth year uh for 100 nights during the summer we have a bugler that sounds taps at 7 p.m at the soldiers monument in the gettysburg national cemetery and this program is sponsored by the uh gettysburg military park the uh the uh, Pennsylvania Fe uh, Lincoln Fellowship uh, and TAPS for Veterans. And mm -hmm. it's always well attended. You know, several hundred people every single night to hear a bugler sound TAPS. Mm -hmm. uh, and we've got programs coming up. We also, TAPS for Veterans supplies a bugler every single day at the National World War I Memorial in downtown D.C. It's a brand new uh, memorial opened up in uh, April this past year. And uh, it has been a wonderful thing. Without fail, since May 24th, we've had a bugler who mm. sounds taps in a World War I uniform wow. at the memorial at 5 p.m. every day. Uh, so we've got that coming up. We've got, uh, let's see now. Um, oh, a couple big things. Uh, of course, the 100 Nights and the Taps Across America. We're going to be doing a Buglers Summit. Uh, and we'll be sending out information on that. September, uh, we're looking at the 16th, 17th, and 18th of this year uh, at Berkeley Plantation, where TAPS was born. Uh, it'll huh. be a chance for buglers to come down, have uh, have some presentations about like military funeral honors, how to perform TAPS correctly, you know, where to stand, talk about that. Mm -hmm. uh, Buddy Cook, who, was, uh, who mm -hmm. mentioned uh, that, uh, one of his things, Buddy Cook has compiled a great anthology of bugle music. And I'm trying to get him down to talk about um, a little bit of history of bugles mm -hmm. uh, throughout, throughout the centuries. Um, and uh, we're also going to uh, have uh, one or two buglers from the Army Band in Washington who will come down and, and give a presentation on how it's, what it's like to <laughs> perform taps at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. You know, people just see the video where they have the bugler walk out and play. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of backstory to, mm -hmm. that leads up to that moment. So uh, we're going to be having registration for that uh, opening in April also. So uh, just make that sure. That sounds fascinating. I, I'm going to have to check that out. And, then, you know, thinking about that bugler walking out, I wonder if it's the same kind of preparation. I'm sure it is as uh, the guards. You know, the, their uniform, their rifle, their weapon has to be absolutely meticulous. Absolutely. That bugle is polished. The um, uniform, they, they, they always make sure that that uniform is spotless before they walk out. Um, and they, there's, great, there's great stories. Uh, the buglers, uh, the army buglers at the tomb are referred to as uh, Sergeant B., uh, by the guards, because <laughs> they don't, you know, they, they never know who, you know, the oh. bugler is. So it's always Sergeant, Sergeant B Sergeant is here B. today. <laughs> um, and they do a wonderful, a wonderful job. And of course, when, when you're uh, a, a bugler 
And then you're standing next to these guys who are like perfect <laughs> examples in uniform. It's, you know, you want to try and be your very best. And these, these guys measure up. It's wonderful. That's uh, and you know, that's something very, uh, I guess sacred's a good word. You know, I I've been there and it's, uh, you, you don't want to speak. You don't want to interrupt the, the solemn nature of that. I mean, I, I don't, I mean, I felt uh, kind of overwhelmed. Uh, when I was there, um, it, it, it is overwhelming. And, um, every time I visit there, you know, it's to this day when I have to go to Arlington for, for whatever reason, when, when I go through the main gates, I almost start crying because it's, you know, mm -hmm. I'm back home almost, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, I, I know every street, you know, I know how to get around the cemetery without any maps. Mm -hmm. uh and it's 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 amazing to, to for the opportunities that i have to to, to go back there mm -hmm. um and I, one of the other things too um i've left this sort of music legacy uh at arlington because uh the band still play my arrangement of going home oh. <laughs> at at the at funerals so that's that's kind of neat to know that uh um that they're still playing it. We just played Dvorak Nine a couple of weeks ago, and I actually thought about uh, thought about that arrangement. Uh, I mean, of course, you know the oboe <laughs> or English horn oh, right. play, plays it you know, a little bit differently, but uh, yeah, that is that's another terrific arrangement. Um, Thanks, and, and 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 that came about because we were looking for a a secular piece of music to perform because a lot of times, you know, when we perform funerals at Arlington, you know, you have to be aware that it could be a Catholic service, a Protestant service or a Jewish service. So you want to make sure you play the proper hymn, but then sometimes it's a non-denominational uh, mm -hmm. funeral. Mm -hmm. So you, we wanted to find something besides America, the beautiful mm -hmm. to, to play. And uh, that was suggested to me. And, um, I did the arrangement, and then all of a sudden, it was it caught on. It was used at the uh, disinterment of the unknown soldier hmm. when they when they brought him up for uh, DNA testing. Um, they they played that. Um, it was used, of course, in the movie Clear and Present Danger, mm -hmm. and because of that, the Reagan family wanted it played at uh, the president's funeral when he passed. So and and so now that has become the piece that's performed at uh, Andrews Air Force Base at presidential funerals when they leave Washington for the last time. Wow. Um, they, the band is there playing Going Home. So I'm, I'm honored about that. And everyone asks me, oh, man, you must be rich off all those you know, royalties. <laughs> I say, well, I get a check once a month <laughs> for mm -hmm. it from mm -hmm. Uncle Sam. So. Well, that so, is quite a quite a legacy. That's yeah, well, uh, well the next time I that. play that, I'm gonna I'm gonna remember that too. Um, hey, I don't want to forget. Uh, let's see, Buddy Cook, thanks for the shout out, Yari. I'm hoping to be there in September. I am too. I've got to check that out. I would love to to find out more. Yes, uh, Sebastian Reyes, uh, Reyes Linus. Sorry if I mispronounced your name. Um, little bugle, American flag. Uh, I'm sure that's a salute right there. Uh, John Poe. Do you know John? Uh, John Poe? Yes. Okay. Howdy, Yari. In over 10 years, I've only been denied playing live at Jacksonville National. The first was by a Marine who insisted that no one but a Marine should sound taps. Yeah. Then she produced the digital. 
The other was for an Army veteran. The NCOIC wouldn't allow me to both participate in our Veterans Honor Guard firing squad and sound taps, but I've had no problem since. I did about good. 70 services last year. Yeah, you know, I, I get um, uh, this. Uh, boy, the Marines seem to have the most problem with the Air Force. That, 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 was, that was what I remember when I was in. Um, I got along with the Army and the Navy just fine. The Marines, you know, are steeped in their own tradition and, uh, you know, they want to do it a certain way. And it's, it's, it's a shame, unfortunately, because a lot of times the, 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 the way they do it is against what's written in manuals. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I love the Marines. I think they're wonderful. Um, but the, the one thing I just wish they would, uh, say hey you know if it's a live bugler let the live bugler play and uh, i've I, maybe, my experiences I've, I've had no issues working with marines um a lot of times you know, when i've go, as a civilian um and i think one of the th- reasons is that um when i wear a suit i always wear all the medals th- mm-hmm. that i've earned and so they'll they'll take a look at that. They'll say, "Okay, this guy's you know he's been around. Right. He's he's paid right. his dues, you know." So I'll I'll play. And I have I tell you, I as I tell buglers, if you know you work with an honor guard and they're not sure if you're playing, offer to play for them. You know, say, "Hey, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, before the family gets here, just to, right. to make you know make you comfortable, give you that warm and fuzzy. I'm mm-hmm. happy to play for you to mm-hmm. make sure you know what I'm doing." Yeah. Um, I don't know. Maybe the Marines, uh, Marine buglers are busy, too busy looking for valve oil. <laughs> yeah. All right. That's a horrible joke, but yeah, it's okay. Yeah. Um, I, I do. I, I, I love my Marines. I, I love every service I work with. I, I, I have nothing but, uh, you know, highest respect for what they do because they, a lot of these guys, they take a time off to make sure that the, the family is honored in the proper way. Well, um, my oldest is Army National Guard full-time. You know, I, I learned to, to love the Army uh, by proxy. Um, but no, I, I do appreciate everybody that serves. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, we could talk more, um, but I, I'm looking at the time. We've been on for a little bit here. Uh, yes. <laughs> and and I, I, I've looked forward to this for such a long time. Uh, so thank you for taking the time to sit down and, and chat tonight. I appreciate it's, that. It's my pleasure. And uh, thanks to the folks who are, you know, all, like watching this and a shout mm-hmm. out to all of them. Um, and thank you. And um, I stand on the shoulders of a lot of great people. Mm-hmm. I really do. Cause I, I can't do the research I can't do, you know, any of the stuff with uh, the, the nonprofit organization without support from uh, uh, great people. And mm-hmm. they, I, I, from the bottom of my heart, I thank you. And, and you know, I'm just going to keep doing this as long as I can keep doing it. And uh, you know, it just means a lot. And as I always like to tell people, because people ask me, well, why do you, why are you doing this? Why aren't you just like happily retired? <laughs> And I, and it's because I do have a debt that I need to repay. Mm. Wow. I'm trying to do that. And, wow. Uh, wow. A heart of gold there, Yari. Wow. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, I, you know what? I hope we get to cross paths uh, sometime soon. I'd love to buy you a cup of coffee. And uh, awesome. Uh, although ca caffeine before uh, playing <laughs> taps might not be a good <laughs> idea. But uh, uh, hang on just a second, and uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna sign off here. I want to thank everybody that uh, tuned in is listening tonight. Of course, you are. This is going to go on the YouTube channel. It'll be there uh, for people to check out after the fact. But uh, yes, I'm looking forward to that one too. So. Uh, all right. Uh, good night, everybody. See you next time.